from 2 Corinthians 2, 12 through 17. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good evening and welcome. My name is Jason, one of the pastors at Grace Downtown, and we are on location this week, so we are glad that you found us here. I heard that a little renegade party started over at Old Brick, but you figured out that we are here due to the sign, so thank you for uh, finding us here. We're so glad that you are here. Uh, We assure you this is a one-week thing. Um, Old Brick, we lease the space there, and Old Brick Uh, The folks that own Old Brick are doing some major renovations. So there's giant scaffolding there, which some of you, I think that you would find that fun. But for the children, we thought it would be a little dangerous. So um, we are here this week. A couple things before I jump in um, to our time in the Word tonight. Uh, We have a area right back here for moms and babies, if you want to take advantage of that. And if you go right out here into the lobby and take a right, you'll find our men's and women's restroom, as well as a drinking fountain. Um, Also, after the service, we are going to have pizza. Uh, We have food after the service every second and fourth week out of the month. And we wanted to make tonight feel as normal as possible and stay on schedule. So we're going to have pizza. We're going to roll out a few tables. Uh, Otherwise, uh, we can mill about, sit where you are, go out in the lobby, and enjoy some pizza with us. We would love to get to know you. So wanted to uh, just thank you for being adaptable and joining us here tonight. Um, If you get bored at any point, family swim time started at 5 o'clock downstairs, and there's a nice ping pong tournament going on downstairs. So uh, if you want to take advantage of that. Um, We are doing a short mini-series here to kick off the new year. Uh, Next week, we will start in a series where we will go through the book of 1 Thessalonians, and we're going to go through the rest of the school year in 1 Thessalonians. But to start off the new year, we wanted to do just a short three-week series and really um, share with you some things that are on our heart as pastors here at Grace. We're one church in two locations. Our other location uh, has three services on Sunday morning up in North Liberty, and then we're 5 p.m. every Sunday night, usually at Old Brick. Uh, But as the elders have been praying and have been praying for you and praying uh, for where God would have us go in the new year, there were some things that we wanted to share. And so um, we are going through this three three-part series called The Blessing in Brokenness, where we are talking about humility and brokenness and really what it takes to experience revival. And as we look ahead to the new year, what we want to focus on is having more of the presence of God. I love this verse in Isaiah 57. We've been taking a look at it each week. It says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. 
This is saying that God lives in a high and holy place. That's what we expect. That's what religions teach, right? That God lives in a high and holy place, and Christianity is no different. It says that God lives in a high and holy place, that he is holy, that he is sovereign, that he is good, that he is eternal. But he also lives with those who are of a contrite, humble, lowly, repentant heart. What an amazing thing. And we want to dive into that these three weeks, uh, this being the third week. And we want to look at what it will take for us as individuals, households, families, as a church, as community groups, to have more of the presence of God as we start the year 2020. The reason that we feel like we need the presence and the Spirit of God in our lives is because life is so complex, right? Life is so complex. How many of you made at least one New Year's resolution or wanted to start a new pattern this year for 2020? Okay, so there's the resolution idea, there's the starting new pattern idea, there's the coming up with a word that you are going to, that word is going to be like your word for the year. It's kind of a reset, a time where we can naturally start into new patterns. How many of you made a commitment and you've already failed on it? Yeah, read the Bible every day, work out every day, or work out more, don't eat cookies, whatever it is. But here we sit on day 12, and if you're like me, you've already broken some of those commitments that you made. Not only that, but as you look back at 2019, I'm guessing there are some things that were challenging for you, or complex for you, or devastating for you. Maybe things that have already happened in the first 12 days of this new year that you would consider devastating or at least complex. Life and the reality of life is full of suffering and brokenness and sin and hard things and complexities and things that we don't see coming, things we can't be prepared for, things that shake our faith, things that make us question God and his word. So as we move forward into 2020, we desperately need the presence of God. In his commentary on 1 Thessalonians, uh, Nija Gupta uh, says that your worldview must maintain its integrity in light of complexity. Meaning that we must have a worldview that meets the challenge when it faces the complexities of life. Well, what I, and more importantly, God's word, Uh, wants to submit to you and, and speak tonight is that the presence of God is that worldview that we need to face life's complexities, whatever this year may hold. So open up with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 if you have not already. Amy just read the verses that we will take a look at here tonight. We'll take a look at each part of these verses and then we'll make some application to our lives. So 2 Corinthians 2 12 is where I'll start. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and I went on to Macedonia. Okay, this is the short version of the story. Paul had a plan and it didn't work out. If you read the book of Acts, um, the first part of Acts, the first few chapters is really exciting, and then it gets really complicated and confusing. It's like Paul went here, and then he went over here, and then there was a shipwreck, and then this person went over here, and then he went there and expected to find this guy, but he didn't find that guy, so he went over. It's so hard to follow what's going on in the book of Acts, but if you read Acts 17, 18, 19, you will see what Paul's talking about here. 
Basically, when Paul made a plan, he had to be adaptable because so many things affected his plan. So they were traveling by ship, so weather would affect their plan. Um, People's change of plans, the Spirit leading people. Sometimes the Spirit would just tell the apostles to go somewhere. Other times he would tell them by shutting a door in their face. And they're like, well, I guess I'm not going over here. I guess I'll try over here. So basically, Paul, I just read this morning in my Bible reading the conversion story of Saul who turned to Paul and started following Jesus. I just read that account this morning and Paul is so excited to take the gospel to unknown places, to take the gospel all over the world. But he keeps hitting these complexities, these difficulties And at one point, we even read that he's given a thorn in the flesh. We're not told what it is, but something that keeps him humbled. Something that keeps him in a place where God tells him, my grace is sufficient for you, but I'm not going to take this thorn away. Paul is going through difficulties. Have you ever had a day where you thought you knew how your day was going to go and it didn't quite go your way? So every day has some of those things, but some days are more normal than others where you kind of get up and you do your thing and you go to work or you take care of the kids and you come home or you have dinner, you put the kids to bed, you go to bed, and it's pretty normal. It went kind of according to plan. But if you had one of those days where nothing went according to plan, where God had a completely different plan for you than the one you thought you had when you started out, that can happen through all kinds of issues. We took one of our kids to the ER this week. That's not... That was not in the plans. We did not make plans for that. Life is full of these change of plans. Paul is experiencing a change of plans. And in fact, he faces these change of plans and he faces even more. If you look later on in this book of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, Paul describes some of his qualifications for being a disciple. He's like, I could brag about the Spirit's calling in my life, but instead I'll talk about my suffering. And here's what he says he's endured as an apostle since he came to Jesus, since God saved his life. In 2 Corinthians 11, he says, Five times I have received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one, which I think is 39. Uh, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. And night and day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. Lots of danger. In toil, hardship, through sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, often without food, in cold, in exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure and anxiety I feel for all the churches. Oh, man. Paul suffered greatly. Paul suffered greatly. So do we. We suffered in 2019. We will suffer things in 2020. What will prepare us for the things that we cannot prepare for? Let's see what Paul has to say. Verse 14, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. But. He says, My plans change. I faced all these trials. But. It's a beautiful word in scripture. It's a beautiful word in theology. It happens so often where we see the difficulties of real life. But we're about to be reminded of who God is. But thanks be to God. He then describes a triumphal procession. What he has in mind here is a victory parade. 
In the Roman Empire, they would have a victory, a king or uh, a great leader would have a victory, and they would march through the city on a victory parade. He's saying, despite all those things, we're on a victory parade. God leads us, Christ leads us always through a triumphal procession. Now, before we move on, let's make sure we got a picture in our head. Let's imagine that we saw a a war movie, okay? Let's imagine we saw a war movie like Saving Private Ryan or Dunkirk or most war movies, but those two come to mind in particular because terrible things happen. First 20 minutes of Saving Private Ryan, just devastating, so devastating. Dunkirk, there's all these moments where they're just sitting ducks and they're getting bombed from above and they're just stranded and they can't get off of the land where they're at. Imagine seeing a scene like that where people are just walking into bullets and being slaughtered. And then it's like, fast forward through the the movie, and at the end, there's a triumphal procession where that same army is marching into town, and everyone is throwing flowers and confetti out and welcoming them back in a triumphal procession. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, I have suffered all these things, but in Christ, we are led through a triumphal procession. Victory comes from our being in Christ, not from our circumstances. That's what Paul wants to get across. Victory comes from us being in Christ and not from our circumstances. Sin is overcome, marriages are healed, peace and joy are given through us being in Christ. And there is no other way. There is no other way. I want to get this into my soul in the year 2020. That my peace, my joy, any love that I have for anyone is going to come from me being in Christ. I so badly want it to come from somewhere else. I try so many other things that seem easier. I read the right books. I get emotionally excited. I try to think my way into doing the right thing or feeling the right thing. And it just doesn't work. The only thing that works is being in Christ. He goes on to say, And through us, Christ spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, we are the fragrance from death to death. To the other, we are fragrance from life to life. Paul here is referring to our lives being an offering that is a pleasing aroma to God. It's a pleasing aroma to God. Our lives being that aroma of Christ and being pleasing to God. I love the smell of food. Um, One of my favorite things is walking through where there's like fresh produce, like fresh basil is one of the greatest smells in the world. I love the smell of food. So we had neighbors that had us over um, last night and they said that they were making Indian food. And having been to India a couple times, I'm like, ooh, my white Norwegian friend is making Indian food. Cool. Um, and they said, we'll order pizza if it's terrible. I'm like, great. So we go over, and the house smells pretty good. I'm like, okay, maybe it doesn't smell like pizza. It must have gone okay. Um, but then they open their Instapot, and they let out the aroma. And it was the first time I've smelled something here in America that smelled like India. 
I had a very similar experience in Kansas City. There's this great Italian grocery store. And I went to Italy a couple times about 20 years ago. I walked into this grocery store in Kansas City and just instantly took me right back to the exact same smell as a grocery store back in Italy. Food smells awesome, and it has this ability to take us back to these memories. We can actually feel our taste buds working and our mouth watering because we're thinking about the food. Food can also taste or smell terrible. Terrible. Have you cleaned out your compost bin? It is terrible. It's so disgusting. When food goes bad, it's one of the worst smells. One time at a church I was working at in Kansas City, uh, we had used potatoes for something, and we thought we would be thrifty and we would save the extra potatoes, so we put them in a closet. And then we buried them, and we didn't clean them out for a year. Rotten potatoes is one of the most unique smells you have ever smelled in your life. Here we are being told that in Christ, we are a sweet aroma to God, that our sacrifice is a sweet aroma to God. Romans 12, 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He's saying that our lives are a offering to God, a living sacrifice that We are this living sacrifice. And Paul here in 2 Corinthians is saying we are the aroma of Christ. We are a pleasing offering to God. But it also says here that to some, we're the fragrance of death. What he's saying here is that to some, as we are in Christ, we'll be a fragrant offering to God, but others will smell our lives, will smell the aroma of Christ on us, and they will be drawn to it. They'll be drawn to the love that we have for each other. They'll be drawn to the love and the peace and the joy that we experience. And so they'll be drawn to God. But we can do the very same things and be the smell of death to those that are perishing. That people can be repelled by our love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That by being in Christ, it can actually push people away. And you've experienced this and I've experienced this. This doesn't mean people run away from Christ because you're a jerk face. That's not what he's talking about. It's not you pushing people away because you're being mean. It's them seeing those fruits of the Spirit and that love in your life and them actually being repelled from it. I've seen this happen as a pastor too many times where I can stand in front of someone or sit with someone and I can talk to them and they can assent to the fact, you know what? I know you and God's word are right, but I want to do this. I know that what you're saying is factually true and it's true based on God's word, but I just want this more. We've all had this experience. This is what Paul is talking about. Some will see the love, joy, and hope in us and be drawn to it, and others will walk away. This is what it looks like to be the aroma of Christ. Then Paul asks the question, who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient to be the aroma of Christ? Who is sufficient to always walk in triumphal procession? Who is sufficient to walk in the Spirit? Who is the sufficient to be the very aroma of Christ 
in this world and draw some to God and repel others away? Who's sufficient for that? And he's asking a rhetorical question. The answer is, not Paul, not you, not me, not anybody. Who is sufficient for these things? No one is sufficient for these things. We often make the mistake of thinking that our salvation, sanctification, Christian witness, our ministry, our mission, or our church are all riding on us. But it's all riding on me. I've got to just figure it out. I got to overcome it. I got to figure it out with my mind. I got to feel differently. I got to Jesus my way through this. I got to do the right spiritual disciplines. If I just do this differently, then I'm going to figure it all out. Paul is saying here, who's sufficient for these things? Later in 2 Corinthians 11, as we read earlier, Paul's like, if anybody's sufficient, it's me and I'm not. Neither are you or I. When we think that it all rides on us, this leads to pride when we're doing well and despair when we're not. It leads to pride, thinking that we accomplish something, thinking that we are sufficient, or it leads to despair because we think we're missing something or we're doing it wrong. Again, the Apostle Paul faced great difficulties and said, I'm not sufficient for these things. So we don't have what it takes in and of ourselves. No amount of education can be sufficient for all we need. No amount of spiritual disciplines, no amount of community, no amount of going to the right church, hearing the right gospel, preaching the right gospel. We can't do enough. We can't save enough people. We can't serve enough to be sufficient. We don't have what it takes. So... How do we go about this? How do we have the right mind? Verse 17, So we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. There's a lot of things here. I'm going to keep this up here. We're going to go through basically each word on here. First, he says, We're not like peddlers of the gospel. He's saying that he and the other apostles, the true followers of Jesus, they are not peddlers of God's word. They don't sell God's word for a profit. They're not in ministry and trying to be the aroma of Christ for their own benefit. He's talking about people that are literally trying to bank off of the gospel and do ministry in order to gain a crowd and gain money. But the overarching principle here is that we don't peddle the gospel of God for ourselves. We don't make it about us. We don't use ministry, mission, or service for our benefit, to make us feel good, for some altruistic pursuit, or to numb down the shame that we feel about our sin. We don't peddle God's word for our own feelings. Next, we are men and women of sincerity. Men and women of sincerity. Paul is saying that this is really at the heart of his resume as an apostle. In multiple places throughout the New Testament, Paul lays out his qualifications for being an apostle and being a minister of the gospel. And he lays out some pretty compelling things. If anyone was qualified, if anyone was sufficient to be a preacher of the gospel, it was Paul. 
But he says, I won't brag in those things. I will only brag in my weakness. I will only brag about Christ's death at work in me. I will only brag about the thorn that's in my flesh because I have to trust the grace and the power of God. He was a man of sincerity. He was a man of sincerity. He didn't say one thing and do another. He was honest about who he was before people. There was actually this group of people that we learn about in 2 Corinthians that he termed the super apostles, which is kind of a fun name for like a Christian punk band. But basically it was like this group of people that was coming in behind Paul and Titus and all these other guys and were coming in and saying, we'll tell you what Paul left out. You can be awesome. You can be rich. You can be powerful. People will follow you. Here's the hidden gospel. Here's what Paul didn't tell you. You can be great. Paul's saying, no, we're men and women of sincerity because of Christ at work in us. Next, we are commissioned by God. We are commissioned by God. When a missionary is sent out on the mission field, we lay hands on them and we commission them. When we appoint new elders as a church, we lay our hands on them and we commission them. When Victoria came on staff downtown, a group of ladies in her community group laid hands on her and prayed for her. They commissioned her. We just sent out a couple last week, the Canes, that have been with us for many years, and God is moving them to another fellowship closer to home so they can do gospel ministry there. And it's awesome. It's hard, but it's awesome. We laid hands on them and commissioned them. Where does our commissioning come from? It comes from God. We're commissioned by God. And that commissioning is the most important commissioning. It's more important than our local church. It's more important than our folks. It's more important than any pastor. It's more important than any missions organization. It's more important than anything. We are commissioned by God to be his ambassadors, to be the aroma of Christ. We are commissioned by God. We are also in the sight of God which there's two ways that you can read that, and I think both are true. In the sight of God, meaning he's watching. He's watching. Everything that we do, he's watching, so we need to be people of sincerity because he's watching. But there's also a positive. I think of the great benediction in the book of Numbers that says, the Lord lifts his countenance upon you. God is watching. He sees. He knows when we think he doesn't know. We think something slipped past him. We are in the sight of God. And lastly, we speak in Christ. We could do the rest of the sermon on words and how powerful they are. But there's really two kinds of speech. There's speech in the flesh and there's speech in Christ and in the spirit. So Paul is laying out for us what gospel ministry looks like, what ministry of sincerity, what the Christian life is supposed to look like. As individuals, as households, as families, as community groups, as a church, we need to look more like this in every passing year. Hopefully, we are getting better at doing gospel ministry and learning more effective techniques and and doing this excellently so we can worship unhindered. 
But the biggest thing that we need is to be this, men and women of sincerity commissioned by God in the sight of God and speaking in Christ. This is what we need to be as a people, as a church. And the way that we get here, I'll just boil it down, is humility and repentance. Humility and repentance. And here's why. When we are humble, we are most like Christ. When we are humble, we are most like Christ. When you humbly serve and you humbly lay down your rights and you humbly give to others for no other reason but to honor God, is there a better feeling in the world? When we humble ourselves, we are the most like Christ. And when we repent, we remember that we are not Christ and we need Christ. So walking more in the Spirit and remembering that we're in Christ will come through humility and repentance. At first, this is a hard pill to swallow. We don't like the things that Brooks talked about last week, not because it was Brooks, but because we don't like what Jesus lists off in the Beatitudes. We don't like meekness, being poor in spirit, humility, repentance, weakness. We don't like those things. We think they're going to hurt too bad. It will be too painful to walk in that way. But the more I live life and do ministry and read God's word, I think the price is too great and the hurt is too great to not walk in that way. Walking in pride and arrogance and thinking that we're sufficient is too costly. It is the fastest way to ruin our lives, ruin our joy, ruin our Christian witness, ruin our marriage, ruin our kids, is to walk in pride. The proud person says in his heart, there is no God. God opposes the proud. The proud person doesn't need to repent because they didn't do anything wrong. The price is too great to walk in pride. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. You want to be great in God's kingdom? You want to do great things for the gospel? Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago when I preached, but uh, my life, I've had a struggle with anxiety, and 2019 was really, really bad. Um, really struggled with some crippling anxiety. Um, and it was something that I didn't want to face. I didn't want to experience it anymore, but I didn't want to look it in the face. But I can say as I enter 2020, this is the year I turned 40, and I'm in a much better place than I was in 2019. The path to victory for me started with humble repentance. It started with going to the people that love me. It was going to my wife. It was going to the elders of this church. It was going to Steve and Victoria that I work with. It was going to men in my community group. It was going to men I trust and saying, I don't know what's wrong with me. 
I think until 2019, I had spent the first 39 years of my life trying to fix my anxiety, trying to manage my anxiety, trying to mask my anxiety, trying to not pay attention to my anxiety. I wanted to fix it first and then tell people about it. As a pastor and a counselor, I thought I could preach to myself and fix it. I thought as a counselor, I knew all the right things to say to myself. I thought I'd learned all the strategies to overcome, and then it just laid me out where there was nothing I could do, nothing that would work, nothing that would mask it. So I had to go to people in my life that I trust and say, I need help. I don't know what's wrong with me. And they would ask me questions, and I barely knew how to answer them. I just had to start there with questions, them asking me questions that I didn't even know how to answer. There was no sprinkling Jesus on it or making it sound nice. I just had to present the bare facts of who I was, how I was feeling, and what my anxiety was bringing into my life. And the ways I was trying to manage it that were not working. It ended up with two men in my life just really coming and saying I could open up my life to them. And through their wise counsel, I was able to see specific things that I needed to do. Things that don't sound like rocket science, things that I have told other people to do. I'm actually paid to help people with their problems. I don't know if you knew that. That's not all I do, but it's a big part of what I do. I was telling people the same things that I tell other people, but I needed to see the exact things that would help me. And before I humbled myself and before I could walk in repentance, I couldn't see those things. I didn't want to try those things. I thought I had tried those things. But as these men wisely walked me through specific parts of God's word and specific spiritual practices and specific areas of repentance and specific life skills, I was able to see some things that could help. I still have anxiety. It still gets me out of nowhere sometimes. I have to pray my way through it. But if I wouldn't have listened to these men, or if I would have said I would have tried all that, or I know to do that, I wouldn't be where I am today. I needed to realize that I was insufficient for the task in front of me. One of the areas that I was walking in pride instead of repentance and humility is that God made me just a conscientious person. And so I thought that like loving people came naturally to me because I was conscientious. But love and being conscientious don't necessarily go hand in hand. And so I thought, I have what it takes. I am sufficient to love people. There are so many things that are hard for me in life. But being hospitable towards people, genuinely caring about people, being pastoral, counseling people, it just comes naturally to me. I've had people my entire adult life telling me I should be a counselor or a pastor. Even when I was 18 and all I wanted to do was play college basketball and be a college coach, they were telling me, you should be a pastor. I'm like, ah, I'm good. No thanks. My whole life, people have been telling me, God made you to do this. But what that and my experience in ministry can lead to is feeling like I'm sufficient. I've got what I need. 
I needed to realize I was insufficient for the task in front of me because 2019 showed me the depths of my own heart and my own pride. 2019 made me want to push everyone away and not have a relationship with anyone. I'm like, people are dumb. I don't want to be around people. And I pushed people away. Walking in humility and repentance is the key to helping with my anxiety. And I should have known because look what the next verse says. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. When we humble ourselves before God, we can cast those anxieties. We can cast that sin. We can cast those struggles. We can cast that circumstance that we don't know how to get through, that thorn in the flesh, that habitual sin. Whatever it is, we can cast that on him because he cares for us. But the proud person says in his heart, there is no God. I got to get through this on my own. They may not be an intellectual atheist, but they're a practical atheist, just like I was with my anxiety. When we walk in pride, God opposes us. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So what does it look like to walk in humility and repentance in each of these areas? Quickly, walking in humility and repentance with God. The first thing that we have to recognize is that God knows. You can talk to him about the worst parts of you. You can talk to him about your fears. Sounds like you better stay here instead of getting that workout in. With God. <laughs> Someone appreciated my dad joke. Okay. Um, with God, with God. God knows our sin. God knows our sin. And while he opposes the proud, he gives grace to the humble. And in Romans, Paul says, what shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also uh, give us all things? Graciously give us all things. When we humble ourselves before God, when we say what he already knows about the state of our heart, he blesses us with his strength, his power, his peace. With family, we can walk in repentance with family. Just very simply, they already know. They already know. They already know that you're proud. They already know that you have anger. They already know that you have anxiety. They already know. Be honest. Walk in the light with spiritual family. I listened to a podcast over um, the holidays, and in this podcast, I don't have time to go into it, but this uh, reporter had a really, really hard life story, and she was trying to figure out how to live in a relationship with her mom that had just done hideous things to her, basically abandoned her. And her secular therapist that does not know Jesus told her that the only path to healing with her mom was vulnerability and humility. Vulnerability and humility. Here's the thing. To walk in real relationship with one another, we have to be honest about who we are and we have to walk humbly before God and one another. But here's the thing. We can only do that with Jesus. 
we have what we need in Christ to walk in humility and vulnerability. We can walk in the light as he is in the light and we can have fellowship with one another. That's what 1 John tells us. We can even walk in peace with our enemies when we are repentant and walk in humility. The Bible tells us that either our enemies, those we have conflict with, either they will see our humility, they will see our repentance, and they will change their heart, or the Bible says that our kindness will heap burning coals on their heads. With the world, with those that don't know Jesus, we're so afraid to mess up in front of people that don't know Jesus. We're so afraid to not have the right answers. But here's the thing. The good news of the gospel, the good news of great joy for all people, the good news is not, I'm sufficient. And I never raise my voice at my kids and I have all the answers. No, the good news of the gospel is talking about how great our God is. Author Mark Sayers says that revival, revival comes not with us singing our own song, but us rediscovering the song of God. The song of God is repentance. It's us being aware of who he is and who we are in light of his greatness. It's an experience like Isaiah has in Isaiah chapter 6 where he sees the glory of God. It shows him who he is, but he walks forward with the commissioning and the power of God. We're told in scripture that we're vessels of mercy, we're jars of clay, we're God's ambassadors. We can even be honest and walk in repentance and humility with those that don't know Christ. We are not sufficient anyway to be the aroma of Christ, so we can walk in humility and repentance. Brokenness, humility, repentance, vulnerability, it's hard, but it's at the very heart of the gospel. The gospel, which is good news, starts with good news about how God is, bad news about our state, good news about what Christ has done for us, and then the good news of us walking in the victory that comes from being in Christ. The good news of the gospel says that we are not good, that nothing good lies within us, that we are not sufficient for the task ahead of us. Whether we're preaching the gospel, raising our kids, getting through school, going to work, overcoming our mental health issues, whatever it is, we are insufficient. We can't do right. We go our own way. We sin. We suffer. But because of what Christ has done, we can be found in Christ. Our sins can be forgiven. We can walk with new life. We can walk in the light. We can be honest about who we really are. We can have the power to forgive others because of what Christ has done for us. It's possible, and I think I've seen in my own life that it's true, that the very thing that we are resisting the most is the very thing that we need to do to have the life that we really want. A life of victory, joy, peace, a life walking in the Spirit, a life commissioned by God, the very thing that we are resisting, the very thing I resisted for most of 2019 is walking in repentance and humility and brokenness. It's the very last thing we want to do, but it is the key to freedom and joy and overcoming the sin that so easily entangles us. The the key to walking through the complexities that life has in front of us. 
It's right there in us laying down our lives. We looked at these last week, the Beatitudes. In Matthew 5, we see the poor in spirit, being poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And you see the result of that brokenness. They inherit life. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They will be comforted. They will be satisfied. And then in Matthew 23, Jesus lays out all these woes for the Pharisees, the religious people of his day. This is the kind of life that you will have on your own. When you think you are sufficient, the Pharisees thought they were sufficient. And Jesus says, actually, woe to you. And here's the kind of life that will be the outcome of living in that pride. Here's the bottom line. When we walk in the flesh, when we walk in pride, anything can defeat us. Anything. But when we walk in the Spirit, no sin, no suffering, nor the devil himself will have victory over us. This is what Scripture tells us from beginning to end, and this is the dwelling place of God. He lives in a high and holy place. He is eternal, but he also dwells with those who are contrite and of a lowly spirit. Let's walk forward into this year and whatever we may face, whatever joy, whatever mourning we may face this year with the presence and power of God as we walk in humility together. In just a moment, we're going to gather up and pray in groups. Um, We've been ending these services on brokenness um, with a time of prayer and then a time of of worshiping God. We want to spend some time praying together um, here as we close. I also want to tell you about um, a a prayer night that's coming up on Tuesday the 21st. It'll be up in North Liberty, but it's at 6.30 in the evening. On Tuesday the 21st, if you'd like to join us where we just are going to come together and cry out to God together. Um, But right now we're going to break up into just groups of a few right around you. If you feel uncomfortable with that, you can sit and pray in your chair. But um, we'd like to invite you to circle up with some others. Pray for those who are hurting due to sin and suffering. Uh, Pray for awareness of our insufficiency. Pray for the Spirit's power in our lives and in our church. Cast your anxieties on Him. Things you're anxious or worried about, cast them up to him and pray that more and more people would smell the aroma of Christ when they come in contact with us. Join with some others to pray and then Steve will bring us back together as we focus on who God is.
But there's an old song that's just been on my mind and my heart uh, all day long as we've been thinking about brokenness and leaning on the Lord. A song that says, something beautiful, something good, all my confusion he understood. All I had to offer him was brokenness and strife, but he made something beautiful out of my life. I remember being a kid growing up in church, basic church, simple church, no lights, no big sound system, just singing that with people who knew they had nothing to count on but the grace of God working in their brokenness. Tonight, the joy and the beauty that we have is, is that we lean into God's strength in the midst of our brokenness. This is something he's been doing for a very long time. If you feel broken tonight, you're not alone. There are people throughout the ages who have felt brokenness. And you can join with him and join with us, singing of God's goodness, God's presence, his grace, and his strength working with you and in you, even in the midst of dark and difficult times. So I wanted you to be encouraged with that, as I've been encouraged with that today as well, just throughout the day.